you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jam DeMatteis, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Defenders, Episode 6. The Six-Fingered Hand, covering a period of Defenders from 1981 to 1982. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your co-host, Jason Schaff. And this is our first Defenders episode, and if you are listening to this in the future, and we've done all of the Defenders episodes, let's hope we get to that point, then um, you'll, you'll be confused hearing us talk about Defenders for the first time here, because this is episode six. But ep- the epic collections are published out of order, and our episodes are also um, produced out of order. So um, bear with us as we dive into the Defenders. For myself personally, this is the first time I'm reading anything Defenders. So uh, this is going to be quite a treat, jumping into the very beginning uh, of the run with writer J.M. DeMatteis and continuing on with the artwork from Don Perlin. Now, Jason, can you tell me what issues are we going to be talking about in this episode? Absolutely. We're going to be covering, starting with Marvel Team-Up 101, Spider-Man and Nighthawk. And then we're going to be moving essentially through the Defenders 92 from February of 1981. And we're going to be bringing us all the way up to Defenders 109, and that comes from July of 1982. In, in the middle of this, we're going to be having a visit uh, with Captain America 268. So this is a very interesting period of the Defenders, from what I understand. Can you tell us a little bit about what we need to know going into this book? First of all, sort of on the historical Marvel Comics side of things, where the Defenders, the book is at this point, and then also sort of from the characters' point of views, what are the, the key things that we need to know about these characters before reading any of these issues? The Defenders. <laughs> the Defenders are a love them or hate them sort of team. They were born out of the 1970s sort of zeitgeist of all about me sort of thing, you know, no real team uh, ethic to the Defenders, unlike the Fantastic Four, that really had their own identity as being a team sort of orientated. This was more of the cast outs of the Marvel Universe. We begin with the union of the Hulk, Doctor Strange, and the Submariner. Later on, we get the Silver Surfer for a couple of uh, spells before he gets really moody and gets very disappointed in all of humanity and, and takes off for quite a <laughs> no good number of issues. Right. Um, but by number four is when we get my favorite of the Defenders, and that would be Valkyrie. In fact, one of the reasons why I decided to go and take a deep dive into the Defenders is because of my love for the character of Valkyrie. Um, she's always been the one from a visual standpoint that has been very intriguing. I loved her Asgardian connection. And when you start delving into the Defenders, 
you're going to find that with Valkyrie, you get a crazy origin story that is going to provide, especially as we're talking about these particular issues, some real gut punches to them. By the time we're picking up the Defenders, we've already gone through some of the most talented writers in Marvel of the time, starting with Steve Englehart. He brought his own ethic to it, which was sort of a social political commentary on the world of the 1970s, early world of the 1970s. And then we moved into Gerber with his sort of, again, social commentary, but also with a biting edge to it. After that, we had David Anthony Kraft, uh, the infamous Dak, uh, we all love over on some of the Facebook channels. He's such an accessible character. And um, <laughs> he brought humor to the story, continuing with a lot of the social commentary. But the period in which we're picking up now is the period of uh, DeMatteis. And those other guys did fantastic work. And there are, there are amazing arches that you can... Uh, read through. Each one of them has an epic story arc of their own. However, DeMatteis is going to differentiate himself from those other guys by focusing less about the defenders reacting to situations, but much more about the characters themselves. And within that context, oh my goodness, some of these characters are going to have gut punches given to them. DeMatteis loves to take us into the mentality of the characters, into the, into the psyche of the characters, and he does not mind roughing them up something terrible. But in the process of which, this ends up being really my favorite era of the Defenders, because I love the individual stories. I love the development of these characters that are mostly cast-offs to the Marvel Universe. By this point in the book, We've gotten away from the Hulk. We've gone, Hulk at this time has started getting banners, intelligence, and so we didn't really quite fit the book. Um, the Submariner's going to kind of come and go, usually get quite angry at everybody, and then rage quit off. And Doctor Strange also had left uh, the book for a considerable amount of time at this point. Um, so when we pick up the story, we have Valkyrie, we're going to have Nighthawk, we're going to have Hellcat. And we're going to be getting Son of Satan in as your mainstay characters. In addition to which, we're going to have, over the course of this particular era, get the return of some of the old defenders, including Silver Surfer, as well as some of the ancillary guys, uh, Devil Slayer being probably one of the most infamous of those ancillary characters. But even if you were an ancillary character to the defenders, you got the DeMatteis treatment, <laughs> as we're going to see. Yeah, that's for sure. So... Let me kick it to you, Curtis. What is your relationship to the Defenders? Uh, did you have one? Are you, were you, did you have a kind of sense going into this of what you might be expecting? Growing up, I only read um, Spider-Man and some various X titles. And, so, and I also grew up, uh, when I started collecting comics, Defenders had already finished so if I wanted to read Defenders, I would have had to, to go into the back issue bins and find them. And I wasn't about to do that because I had a very limited budget because I was just a kid. And so I just bought <laughs> sure. my, uh, my Spider-Man, my X-Men, and that was about it. Um, and then when, when I got older and could afford to, to buy more, I just never touched it. I don't know why. I had no reason 
to not touch it, but I just didn't. Um, probably because it was all of these D-list characters, that many of whom I wasn't familiar with at all, so I didn't really care about. One of the things I love about this podcast is it's making me read things that I normally wouldn't, and, and I'm glad for it because I totally enjoy this. I really like J.M. DeMatteis's writing. I liked him on Captain America. I like him on Spider-Man. And so I'm totally open to seeing what he's going to do here in Defenders as well. Right on. Right on. So good. So this is a, a brand new experience for you. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing your, uh, your impressions. Um, similar to you when I was a kid. The Defenders were an odd title because I'm a little older than you. So I remember they were there in the 80s when I was in my, my heaviest rotation of collecting. And I remember it always being this odd little title. They usually had really interesting co covers to them. And every once in a while, you'd see the Defenders appearing in other books. But periodically, when I'd pick up an issue here or there, it was just so arcane in terms of the storylines. <laughs> yeah. These were not stories meant for your kids. These always seem to have a little bit more of a, um, an adult edge to them. For me, I didn't really come to the book full throttle until I was an adult. And um, there's times, there's, there's issues here and there, and I'll, I'll speak to those moments where I do recall as a kid buying an issue or two. Uh, but for the most part, these were things I, I had to come to with much more mature eyes, and I'm glad I did, because I think I was better for that experience. I should say that I actually have read a few Defender stories um, doing this podcast, such as the three-part Scorpio story with Moon Knight, Fantastic. Um, because that was in the Moon Knight epic collection. Uh, that one, I didn't really know what was going on because I had no context to the Defenders at all. So it was kind of an odd read. Um, and then I also read there's a two-part um, two Omega the Unknown storyline that wrapped up his series because that was in the Omega yep. the Unknown classic collection that I read. And uh, um, so that was, again, just kind of throwing <laughs> these characters in and I didn't know what was going on. But... Um, but it was nice to get a good chunk at a good starting point. So I would say for people who have never experienced the Defenders that this is actually a great place to start because this is a completely different group than the original Defenders and Defenders number one, um, aside from Doctor Strange, I guess, and the Hulk who shows up from time to time in this book. But um, it's it, it's just a new creative team, so it's a new place to, to begin. And, uh, and they do a great job of letting you know who these characters are and you don't I don't feel like I'm stuck right into the into the middle of something big uh, I really do feel like it starts off uh, small Doctor Strange is kind of a, um, just needs some help so he calls his buddies and yep. we, we learn about it from there what are some of the things we need to know story-wise before reading these issues um, story-wise there's really not too much you need to have as a as a background to jump right into this particular storyline. And mostly I say that because, well, you're going to get some refreshers, especially as it pertains to Nighthawk. Nighthawk's going to be knowing what Nighthawk does and maybe a little bit towards knowing what Valkyrie does. Um, you'll benefit from it. But they, this is Marvel Comics of the 80s. They spend a page or two re refreshing you on what you need to know. Yeah, they sure do. The reason why I'm, I'm going to say you don't really need to know too, too much before you can jump right in is because you don't really get too much character developments previous to the De Mateus run. You get great stories. You get 
fantastic, interesting spins here and there. But for the most part, they're external to the characters themselves. Do you think that's because a lot of these characters had books of their own, like the Hulk and um, Doctor Strange and, and Namor? Like they had their own ongoing series, although I don't know Namor had one at, at this time. But there is always the thing like, um, who was it that was telling me? Maybe it was Steve Englehart was saying that he couldn't do anything with the Hulk in this book because anything important that happened with the Hulk was happening in the other, the, the real Hulk Absolutely. book. Uh, and so now that we have a, a cast of characters that don't have their own ongoing series, we can actually focus on the characters. Like the, the, the team that Demetrius has, has created here, Son of Satan, his series is canceled. Um, Hellcat, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, all of these, like Gargoyle, because you just created him. None of these guys have their own book. So the, Demetrius is free to do whatever he wants with them. There's an element of truth to that. If I were to abridge what I said before, I'd say that Valkyrie gets some character development before. But there's a great story about Silver Surfer's participation in the Defenders. And... If I got the story correct, it basically goes that Englehart had to go before Stan Lee and really make a strong case. Please give me the Silver Surfer. Please, please, please. And Stan was very protective of, of Surfer. Um, in many ways, Surfer became his kind of soapbox. And so he, Stan was very didn't want anyone else messing with the voice of the character. And so when he finally arrives, he just doesn't last that long because you can't really do too much with him except for have him just whoop everybody's butt and then <laughs> go his own way. Yeah. Um, Hulk is an interesting case because Hulk is, in some ways, is kind of stuck as being a one-dimensional character through a lot. Um, and when you read some of those early issues, God, you feel for poor Doctor Strange dealing with the egos of Hulk and Namor, and to an extent, the Silver Surfer. One of the fun things about it is just trying to put yourself into the, into the shoes of Doctor Strange, wondering why would a guy with this level of ed education, this level of uh, sophistication, deal with these crazy personalities? And the Hulk will periodically just wreck his wonderful Greenwich Village home just because he's angry, just because somebody said something he didn't like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the early issues of the defenders they make no sense from the character standpoint but they work they work if you're able to set that aside and enjoy the idea of these crazy characters coming together mm -hmm. there are ancillary characters in those early issues like the red guardian who does nothing she serves no point um which is why i i, I kind of emphasize that idea that there's very little by way of character development, with maybe the exception of Valkyrie, and even that comes few and far between. Um, but it was much more about stories about, let's go and fight the villain of the week. And usually that meant a, a wizard in hot pants who was going to do something <laughs> terrible, and you go and fight him. Now, here, here's a question I have for you. Okay. Did the previous writers of Defenders have this supernatural bend to their writing or is that something that Demetrius has brought in to the defenders like with demons and all this kind of stuff like that's the, a mainstay of his work here in this volume is is that that side of the supernatural absolutely the defenders have always gone after the supernatural threats but if you have a book that has doctor strange gargoyle son of satan devil slayer uh, valkyrie to an extent you're almost 
typecast as it. You're <laughs> yeah, almost pigeonholed so. into it. Because why are those characters hanging out if not to fight wizards in hot pants uh, or demons or <laughs> something along those lines? There are some great story arcs. Like, for example, you have, um, you have them fighting the Wrecking Crew in a two-issue, maybe three, two-issue arc. Uh, that I believe Gerber wrote, and that's a fantastic knockdown drag out fight. But it's crazy because you see Doctor Strange getting beaten up. And you never see Doctor Strange getting beaten up because in his own books, usually it's all about casting spells and yeah, yeah, right. battles of wills. But here he's getting thumped by <laughs> a dude with a wrecking ball, and it's hilarious, and he's so out of place. So there always is that tension like, how do you write stories that make sense for the Submariners to be there or make sense for the Hulk to be there? Um, and so that's what some of the, the tension you get in those early issues of the Defenders are. Sometimes that doesn't work in this book either because um, Spider-Man shows up for a couple issues toward the end of this <laughs> book and he has no point of being there at all, really. Yeah. Yeah. And Luke Cage was in some of those early issues as well. And, and he's always a welcome presence, in my opinion, but um, didn't quite fit in either. No. Okay, before we jump into the issues, I want to talk about uh, Twitter a little bit here. So my question was, the Defender's Gargoyle, Isaac Christians, what is your opinion on this character? And my options were, the best Defender, an interesting character, I'll take him or leave him, just the worst. <laughs> so, out of the votes here, um, 11% said that, this, that Gargoyle is the best Defender. 22% said he's an interesting character, 23% said he's just the worst, and 44% said they'll take him or leave him, or indifferent. So, there we go. He is a character that most people, they don't hate, but he's just kind of there. They don't really love him either. Mm. I'll give my opinions on Gargoyle when we hit issue 94, his first appearance. Okay. Because I came to him with mixed opinions, and they may have changed. So Brian left a little comment on Twitter, and he said the elderly are unrepresented in the superhero space. And I don't know if he's being sarcastic or not, but I thought that was actually a good point. Like, how often do you get an elderly superhero uh, who can, like, stand up amongst all of the other greats? There's the wizard, but there's, yeah. not, there's not really anybody else. That's a, that's a great point. And furthermore, they even have fun with it yeah. in the sense that he has a relationship which is going to turn romantic beyond the scope of these issues with Dolly, that was um, Patsy's housekeeper. Right. But I would have loved to have seen more Get Off My Lawn from an elderly <laughs> character. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen more Back in My Day, Sunny sort of stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think that was a little bit of a missed opportunity. So on Facebook and Instagram, I, I asked people to give their comments about this era of the Defenders and tell me what they thought. Got some really good comments. Prom Cakes, someone by the, by the, with the handle Prom Cakes says, just be sure to refer to him as Whirlin Don Perlin. So <laughs> let's make sure that we do that. Whirlin Don Perlin. That's his Stan Lee name, I guess. Excellent. Excellent. Jason says, my biggest problem with the Defenders is that when they were first formed, there were three and then four of the biggest names in Marvel. And then they went, and as they went on, they were filled with C-listers. It's one thing that held me back from diving deep into the later part of the series. And I think you mentioned that before as well. There's people who just don't get into the Defenders because of the roster. Yeah, some of my friends, 
who uh, are RPG guys or Heroclix guys, they love talking about how the first incarnation of the Defenders is probably one of the most powerful superhero teams of all time, if you include Sil- uh, Silver Surfer and then Valkyrie into there as well. Um, but tell you the truth, I've always had a soft spot for those B, C, and D listers. I mean, my goodness, one of my favorite characters of all time is Frogman. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. and he makes an appearance in the new Defenders. Nice. So if we get to that one, we get the glory of the fabulous Frogman. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's all about what you like, what you care for. If you like the big, powerful heroes, read the early Defenders by all means. Um, if you like the the B, C, D listers, then the Defenders is good for you. And I'll say this about the about the Defenders and having these D listers. They're disposable, which means you can bump them up and rough them up in ways that maybe you can't, your Captain Americas yeah. or your Doctor Stranges. That's true. So Tommy left a comment. He said, during J.M. DiMatteis' run on Captain America toward the end, just before the fights with the Red Skull around 300, we see a longtime friend from Cap, Dave Cox, from Steve Englehart's run on Cap, using the Devil Slayer outfit. I suppose Dave was a temporary avatar of Devil Slayer. Is it referenced during J.M. DiMatteis' run on Defenders? That's what he wants to know. And it's not in this book, but I don't know about beyond this. I have this. no recollection of that, I'm afraid. Okay. So we will have to uh, keep on reading and see if our, our question is answered. Or maybe it's answered in cap, I don't know. But sorry, Tommy, we can't answer your question on that one. Okay, another comment here. Theodore says, here's a question. If Jessica Jones existed back then, do you think that this arc would work with the Netflix Defenders? No. And I say that because the, the, the modern Defenders, and I love them, uh, the modern Defenders are street. You need street stories. You need small-scale stories. You need uh, a setting that, that, that matches what those characters bring to the table. You start bringing Jessica Jones and Iron Fist, well, maybe not Iron Fist to a lesser extent, but Daredevil as well. You start bringing them into hell, um, and they're just not really going to fit, at least in my opinion. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. Now, they could get into some supernatural stuff if like, they all meet up with Shenlong, the dragon that gives Iron Fist his powers, or whatever his name is, I can't remember. But, um, that, but yeah, you're right. The, the whole, this whole supernatural side of things is not what the focus of the Netflix shows are about, and I don't think that they should be. Yeah, yeah. Now, it is interesting, though, because Hellcat, or um, Patsy Walker, is in Jessica Jones. Oh, yeah. Um, and it looks like we're getting the hint that she might yeah. play a better role coming up in season three. Totally. And I could totally see um, her going to some dark place to, to gain some sort of supernatural powers or something like that. and like, Or she already kind of has these supernatural powers based on the experiments that are being done to her in Jessica Jones season two. But... Um, so uh, what I found it really interesting is that in Alias, in the comics, Jessica Jones, or sorry, the Patsy Walker role is played by Carol Danvers. Mm. And in the Defenders here, um, the, Val, the Valkyrie role in terms of the Val's relationship with Hellcat is played by Jessica Jones. So they have the same characters, um, but they've kind of stuck the... They, They've, they've stuck these two characters together, Patsy Walker and Jessica Jones for the Netflix show, um, but they still keep kind of the same storylines going for each character. I thought it was actually kind of a neat a neat change up there. Wow. Well, I have to give you credit for knowing that. I'm not as familiar with 
the Alias series as I think I need to be because I, I hear everything great about that series. The first story arc at least is good. I haven't really read much more beyond that, but um... well, here's something I'll I'll say, which is a, a real credit also to these issues is one of the most touching aspects of these issues is the female friendship of Valkyrie and Patsy. Yeah. And this has been something that's been going on quite a lot. If you talk about, like, the Bechtel test, you know, does, do two female characters speak to each other? Do they speak about personal things as opposed to ancillary things to the story or, or about a guy? The Defenders passed the Bechtel test in spades. I mean, these... You have, you have quite a few issues versus Girls' Night Out, and... Uh, they're talking about their emotions, they're talking about their feelings, they're talking about uh, about themselves as characters. Um, so there's a lot of onus on on that relationship, and, and it's quite touching at mm-hmm. times. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's neat to see um, how both of them react to to each other, because the major, major things happen to both of these characters, and, and it affects the other one quite a bit absolutely so yeah absolutely. it's nice to see okay one final comment and this one's the doozy jc always writes some really good long comments right on so here it is this book brought back a lot of cool memories these books came out when i was 10 or 11 and i had start just started collecting comics back then i particularly liked books featuring obscure heroes because it made me feel like an expert over my friends who just knew spider-man and hulk I was like an early version hipster, and no Marvel book v- featured more D-list characters than Defenders. Uh, Dematteis' spiritual storyline was a little heavy for me, but I loved all the colorful costumes and looked forward to this book each month. Perlin's art was just fine for my taste. It was clearly not up to the Burn slash Austin art from my favorite title, Uncanny X-Men, but I still liked it. Other random thoughts. The Michael Golden cover from issue number 96 is particularly gorgeous. The Ghost Rider one. Oh, Ghost Rider. Yeah, that was that's a great oh, that's cover. The best, that's the best in the... Uh, before we get to the new Defenders, because the new Defenders are defined by some of the most spectacular covers you'll ever see. But yeah, that one is amazing. And it's clearly the best of this of this particular run. I also really like the, the issue they've chosen for the cover of this collection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's another uh, golden one, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it is Michael Golden. He's just fantastic. And I, when I first saw it, I had to look hard because I thought... It had a lot of sort of a Chris Pacello kind of look to it. Have you ever interviewed Golden? He is a guy who perplexes me in that he could have he could be in the same Hall of Fame as Byrne and Kirby and the greats, but he just didn't do as much work. Um, but when he does work, my goodness, he's one of the best. He is. Yeah, I haven't interviewed him yet, but I hope to do that at some point. Get them for a Micronauts issue. Well, I guess they don't have epic Marvel Micronauts, unfortunately. <laughs> and there probably will never be. No, sad. <laughs> okay, continuing on JC's comments here, he says, Issue number 97 was the first issue of Defenders I ever bought. I grabbed it off the 7-Eleven spinner rack because I only recognized Doctor Strange from the cover and wanted to learn about the other characters <laughs> featured. <laughs> what an issue to grab. <laughs> what an intro issue, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> 11-year-old me read the word balloon, what the Devil Slayer didn't join the Defenders to fight angels, and thought that the person speaking was legitimately angry and some off-screen hero named Devil Slayer who passed on helping the Defenders fight the angels on the cover. Um, I figured it out quickly, but I still remember my confusion to this day. And then he he also says, uh, Asia 98 was quite unique because it didn't have the standard Marvel comic group banner across the top of the cover. 
As a kid, I noticed it right away and was confused because all of the other titles that month featured the normal banner across the top of the cover. And, you know, I noticed something was off and I couldn't place my finger on it. But, of course, now I realize that that's what it is. I didn't even notice that. There's another issue in this collection that also doesn't have the banner. The one um, with the big skull on the cover. Yeah, that's the uh, the devil. Uh, oh, no, that's the uh, Valkyrie issue 107. Yeah. Um, okay, he also says, I also have a very distinct recollection of picking up issues 107 and immediately noticing it didn't have the Comic Code Authority stamp on it. And this excited me. What would there be? Nudity? Swear words? Why was the code not on the cover? I'm still not entirely sure to this day. I assume it was because of the somewhat graphic nature of Valkyrie's death. Absolutely. Yep. That's the only thing I could think of. Reading these stories again over 35 years later, I find them that I still felt the same way about them. The mystical or spiritual aspects of these stories weren't my favorite. Uh, he says I enjoy the more street-level or science fiction tales. But the assortment of characters, particularly the obscure ones, more than made up for the tone of the stories for me. What other title would give me a lead character like Nighthawk, whose costume is one of my all-time favorites, or Gargoyle, or Hellcat, or Dare Devil Slayer? And then throw in guest stars like Ghost Rider, Mr. Fantastic, Daredevil, and Captain America. Team books were always my favorite. Avengers and X-Men were at the top of my list, but the oddball non-team was also held in high regard by this young Marvel fan. Thanks, JC, for, that, for those great comments. JC obviously is a man of class and intelligence, um, as he likes these underused characters. Uh, shows a sign of sophistication. Good job, JC. Yeah, thanks, JC. Okay, I think that's enough rambling from us. We should probably jump into the issues. Now, I wanted to say also that I really tried to get some interviews for this episode, but I couldn't because I, I contacted Don Perlin and he told me that he doesn't do interviews anymore, mm. which is a real shame because I think he'd have some great things to say. Uh, and then JMD Matias, he loves to do interviews, but he's just not free right now. So I'm going to talk to him in August and I'll have plenty of material for the next episode of Defenders with him talking about his work on this oh, title. Fantastic. Yeah. I had communication with Don Perlin uh, when I was doing my blog on the uh, uh, Marvel Facebook group, and I almost felt bad for it because among the fans on that particular site, he's not held in the highest of esteem. And so, at one point, I uh, I, I tagged him on on one of my posts, and I was very fa I, I think he's fantastic, especially if you match him with the great inker, he really shines. But he knows how to lay out a page really well, and. He depicts action very well, and he has good facial expression, so I, I was quite positive. Some of my friends, however, were not so positive, and um, you know, they gave him a little bit of a little bit of guff uh, until we had to remind them that Don Perlin kind of <laughs> looks at these pages, guys. Calm yeah, down. yeah, yeah. No, that's too bad. Yeah, it's too bad. But uh, you know, again, in my opinion, I think he's he he's, he definitely fits the Marvel style and uh, can do great work. He does. Yes, absolutely. And I think that a lot of the times an anchor can make or break his artwork. Yeah. He looks great with Joe Sinnott because Joe Sinnott, I think, takes over a lot of the pencils that he, that he does inks for. Sure. But you can still see him, see Perlin, like you said, it, like it's all of his layouts, it's all his pacing. Um, and he does a great job of, of uh, hitting all the beats at the right points. Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the problems that plagued the Defenders from start to finish was 
a lack of consistent inking. It's a shame uh, because when they do have great inkers, the book is really, the, you know, the story just really pops out of the page. Unfortunately, that's it's not always the case. Okay, let's go right into the, uh, Marvel Team-Up number 101. This is the first issue in this book, and it is about uh, Spider-Man teaming up with Nighthawk. Of course, we know Marvel Team-Up is um, primarily a Spider-Man book. I think there are a few issues where he is not the star, but uh, most of the time he's teaming up with a different hero each month, and then this time it's Nighthawk. And in this one, a robot of Nighthawk's dead ex-girlfriend attacks him, Nighthawk, at, um, at a press conference that he's speaking at. Yes. And <laughs> so right off the bat, um, super bizarre. And the robot turns out to be controlled by Nighthawk's dead ex-girlfriend. <laughs> so it's just like <laughs> the the robot of the dead ex-girlfriend is being controlled by the dead ex-girlfriend. I think that's just so funny. Um, and of course, they have to th- th- tell a little bit about the backstory of why she's dead and how she's alive. Yeah. Do we know that this girlfriend is already dead or is this the first time we're meeting her? We get introduced to her in um, Defenders 32, I believe it is. Okay. And as I said before, my relationship with Nighthawk is, is, is a rough one. Um, and one of the things that's always kind of struck me about him was that uh, he very rarely takes the responsibility for the actions that he does. And Mindy Williams is one of those cases. His old college girlfriend, he gets he goes drunk driving with her, gets into an accident that he thought killed her. Turns out uh, daddy came by and paid her to be quiet, but she was crippled from the result of it. Yeah, this is a crazy story, isn't it? It, it reminds me a lot, or it has a lot of kind of overturns to the Kent States thing where you have a bunch of hippie protesters, yeah. mm-hmm. and then you have some uh, National Guard guys who start shooting the place up. I remember read, when I was reading, I was like, hmm, that's, that's a little on the chin. Yeah, but there were robots anyway, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very unusual because all of a sudden we're in ni- the 1960s, and, but then they're all robots actually as well. Like she, it, it said that, she, that Mindy gets all of this money from a settlement and mm-hmm. she uses it to make cutting-edge robots. That must have been quite the settlement. Now, I know that Kyle Richmond is is rich, so he's got a lot of money. But yeah. how expensive is it to get that many cutting-edge robots? Well, she went to the right place. She went to AIM, uh, the beekeepers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I guess if you're going to go shopping for robots that are going to be up for evil intent, AIM is probably the place to go. I would imagine so, yeah. <laughs> Stuff I love about this issue. I love the uh, comments between Spidey and um, and Kyle when they first meet up, and they have the comment about secret identities. And Spidey's like, you know, "Aren't you bothered? The pair, everybody knows who you are." And uh, yeah, Kyle's like, "No, I'm not really." Until it turns out that's because his secret identity is not so secret. People are able to track him down, and you get the the note from Mindy: "You killed Mindy. Now it's your turn to die." Yeah. Um, so Marvel Team-Up is often used as a place to wrap up stories. For instance, when Iron Fist, the series was canceled, they tied up loose ends in Marvel Team-Up, a couple issues of that. But this one, this issue is used to begin um, J.M. DeMatteis' run on Defenders. In fact, he wrote this issue as well. 
Oh, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. The ending is kind of interesting as well, because um, you get the moment she tries to stand up and, and kill. But you get a sense of just how conflicted Mindy is. On page 21, for example, the upper part, you have that, that, that panel. I did love you, Kyle. At least I think I did. I mean, I, I, oh, Lord, help me, Kyle, please. And then he kind of swoops her up, takes her off to help her. But as we're going to learn a little bit later, not the best place, Kyle. <laughs> not the place, <laughs> best place to drop her off by. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Big mistake. Yeah, it, it's interesting to see him here because I don't have um, any real knowledge of Nighthawk. Um, but you tell me that he is a very selfish, kind of self-serving guy, quite whiny at times. That's um, my impression. I know some folks love him. Um, for me, he was he was intolerable. <laughs> and periodically, when he threatens to quit, I'm like, yes, yes, do it. <laughs> uh, but then he comes back. But I'll, I feel like this scene here, when he swoops up Mindy, he's acting all, you know, altruistic and chivalrous, or whatever, but he's only doing it because he's he's guilty and then he just shudders her away in some some home and doesn't really talk to her i think the next time we see so he says it's been like a year or something like that since he's seen her so he doesn't actually really want to help but he so but he just kind of does the minimal effort and then one other fun thing about this issue again on page 21 the, the last panel i just love how you have like the clouds of uncle ben's face yeah (laughs) yeah just as a little reminder of the pathos. How many times has Uncle Ben appeared in the clouds over the years? <laughs> many, many times. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Uh, oh, and there's also a backup story in this one, drawn by the late, great Steve Ditko. And as yeah. of this recording, Steve Ditko just passed away uh, like a week ago. And um, so it was kind of timely to pull out something and be surprised that, oh, here's, here's some of Steve's work. Yeah, what'd you think of it? The story's nice. I think it. Um, I had more of a um, a better opinion of Nighthawk after reading this story than I did after the first one. Because mm-hmm. uh, you get a sense of him as a hero, and uh, yeah, it was nice. Steve Steve Ditko during this era um, wasn't my favorite in terms of art. I found him to be yeah. a little bit more stiff than than he was back in the '60s. But I mean, it it served the story, and he did a fine job telling it. So there's nothing, nothing really offensive about it or anything like that. No, it's pretty basic. I'm I'm right there with you. When I came to Ditko, it was late. It was late in his Marvel career, and I just wasn't really able to get on board with some of the stuff he was doing on like Captain Universe or Machine Man after Kirby stepped aside on that. And um, oh, and the later ROM issues were oh, just just ruined that title for me. <laughs> but but uh, going back and looking at his original stuff with Spider-Man, fantastic. Just fantastic. Yeah. And in his Doctor Strange stuff as well, fantastic. So it's hit or miss with me, I suppose. Well, and that's like all creators. I I prefer Jack Kirby of the 60s over Jack Kirby of the 80s or 70s as well. Yeah. Just after he got super stylized, I wasn't my thing. But... Um, it's, it is good to go back and check out the creators in their prime because that's, uh, that's why they are so influential. And, and Steve Ditko is very influential. Absolutely. Yep. I like when issue titles include puns 
and this mm-hmm. one's a great pun on the title of an Elton John song. Yeah. <laughs> a great Except song. reversed because um, Nighthawk, his powers disappear when the sun comes up. Mm, yeah. Uh, didn't even think of that. That's fantastic. All right. So Defenders 92 from February of 1981. This is a fun little story that when you first, at least when I first read I thought it was a one and done. Yeah. That probably could have, if it was coming out today, I imagine it would be a much bigger arc, story arc to it, because it's a huge implication story. Yeah. So essentially you have Eternity, the great big cosmic entity. Uh, speaking of Dicta, Dicko, uh, the guy who really defined that look. Fantastic look. And he wanted to... I guess, understands the experience of sentient life. And so we divided himself up into these aspects of his being. Went, they all went down to Earth and other places and um, uh, decided they don't want to come back. They kind of liked it. <laughs> and so we basically have your MacGuffin quest story where the defenders have to go and try to wrangle these aspects back in uh, to return back to eternity. So we have a great monkey god sort of fight taking place in India. You have snowmen fighting in, uh, in Russia. Um, and to tell you the truth, I love this issue. I thought this was just such a fun story, a nice little concise story. It, it, it works. Things are done. Uh, we also get some very good character beats, such as Hellcat and Son of Satan te- teaming up in their little part of the MacGuffin quest. And... In that meeting up with those two, you also start to get some implications or some ideas about what may come from that relationship further down the line. I really enjoyed this issue, too. I thought there was, it, it just, um, it, it set the bar really high, I think, to start. Uh, I was yeah. quite surprised because it was, it was such a nice, like you said, a concise story, yet the implications are huge. Mm. It's always nice to see Doc Strange interacting with Eternity because they go back a long way. Mm-hmm. And I really like the storytelling device on page 30 where you have the completely blank panels to oh, show that, uh, that yeah, a part of reality or part of existence just doesn't exist anymore. I <laughs> thought that was really cool. It's a great use of space. Loved it. Yeah. One thing I love about this issue, if you turn to page 41, I love the interaction. See, I, uh, for me character beats and character interaction is what really excites me in a comic book. So if you look at the middle middle passage, you have this great interaction between Namor and Valkyrie. So to read the, to read the dialogue, here comes Namor. How long will this day go on? Or will this go on? Since the day we met, that man of magic has been coaxing me to a battle occult menaces aiding humankind that abhors me. And then Val comes back at him. Since that day, you've done nothing but complain about it, Namor. <laughs> I think beneath it all, you like it. That you like it that way. Uh, why else have you not rarely ignored Stephen's summons or pleases? And then the fight happens. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I love that it's Val so good. gives uh, gives Namor a little bit of his own medicine there. And that's what like this book is full of strong personalities. No mm-hmm. one no one backs down from anybody else, and that's that's pretty cool. I felt not knowing anything about Nighthawk, like he has some pretty good moments here uh, of just being sort of the emotional core of the team, which is weird to say based on what you've told me about Nighthawk in the past. Right. Just at the very end, when one of the manifestations of Eternity is a child, 
who has parents and they had to take that child away from the parents so that 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 entity could return to eternity and at the very end you he you just see Kyle and he's like I'm just thinking about those two sweet old people in Russia who are going to feel mm-hmm. very lonely tonight. It's like that's yeah. that's uh and and heck he even tells off eternity um, on page 48 it's real humanity means sacrifice in the name of love the same kind of selfless love others have shown you but until you've learned that you'll never be human <laughs> i love it yeah yeah he's great it's, and yeah. it's funny to hear him talk about sacrifice and selflessness <laughs> if you have the relationship i have with him it's like hmm yeah all right coming from you that's interesting yeah it's like he could be all talk but when it push comes to shove will he actually do it Mm-hmm. At the beginning of this book, maybe not, but at the end of the book, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay, moving on to issue number 93. Oh, this is great. This one's called The Woman Behind the Man, and this is a <laughs> Namor story. And in this one, uh, Namor finds that Dorma is alive. Um, and Dorma is a character that goes way back into Namor history, back to the pretty much the beginning Yes, sir. Um, and she's been gone for quite some time, dead, assumed dead, but Namor finds her alive. And with her influence, her influencing him, to, um, Namor attacks the surface because he believes the surface is uh, to blame, as, you know, he usually comes to that conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> but then we find out that Dorma isn't really Dorma. So it's a nice kind of uh, bait and switch there. And the surprising thing about this issue is that Namor actually is far more successful than he usually is on his attack of the surface world this time. He actually takes down London mm-hmm. and takes control of London. Uh, usually he doesn't make it past the waterfront. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, what I love about it is that we have the Atlanteans at first are kind of, are kind of reluctant uh, they're almost like Namor again. I mean, how many times we got to go through this? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Until he finally go, goes and gives one of those imperious wrecks, and uh, they're all like, "I guess, I guess we're gonna do it this time." Yeah, and this was kind of a one and done issue, except for the fact that we find out that the person behind it, behind all of this, is Nebulon. Yes, and from I don't know anything about Nebulon, but from what I can tell from these flashbacks, is he plays a really big part in uh in defender's history yes let me speak to nebulon nebulon is is a fun character uh he came i believe during the gerber run and he was instrumental in in gerber's big arc on the bozos which is something i can't even explain you have to kind of experience yourself (laughs) but um he's designed to look like a 1970s glam rock sort of character yeah with gold skin <laughs> sparkling black outfits and one of the questions that comes out of this issue is did namor and nebulon hook up because <laughs> <laughs> he's disguised as dorma yeah right and there's this one panel on page 67 that is hilarious because presumably Namor and Nebulon are together on their submarine, and you have an image of the submarine, and the panels, or the, the, the writing says, first, there is a gentle rocking, and then a persistent throbbing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So when I posted that on the Facebook group, that <laughs> got plenty of fun responses. 
<laughs> oh yeah wow <laughs> and poor namor this is not the first time in namor's career where he's gonna f- hook up with somebody who then turns out to be a gigantic fish alien fish <laughs> <laughs> because when he gets married to marina marina famous from alpha flight yeah she also turns into a, a psychopathic fish <laughs> so. oh no love no love for namor no and sadly, this is the last time we're going to see Nebulon in the comic. Um, and he goes out like a chump. He, he doesn't really put up a good fight before he gets knocked out and thrown into space or thrown up into the atmosphere. And then he gets picked up by his own people into space. And, and that's it for Nebulon. I'm sure he's come back since. At least I hope so. But That ending know. with him being just taken up in a tractor beam by his own alien race and flying away, it's such... A 1960s Stanley ending, like you oh, can so. see, yeah, something like out of Tales to Astonish, the alien race realizes they they can't take over Earth after all, so they have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, great stuff, uh, great stuff. So, shall we jump into '94? Let's do it. This is the beginning of the six-fingered hand proper, and so. We're going to have the return of the Son of Satan. And we get some trouble taking place in, uh, Val- or in uh, the home uh, in New Jersey, the home of Patsy. And so the defenders all kind of arrive on the scene and find that they got to go and mix it up in, uh, in New Jersey. I love when the story opens up because you got Damien riding in on his flaming chariot. Landing right there on the streets of New Jersey, um, uh, poor Patsy's home. But essentially also we're introduced to Gargoyle for the first time as he's about to sacrifice Patsy to these, this demon called Avarish. And we learn that Avarish is actually part of something much, much larger, mm-hmm. the six-fingered hands. So let's talk Gargoyle. Okay, because <laughs> you had that pull. Now, when I was a kid, I remember kind of being turned off by Gargoyle. And so one of the things I was really looking forward to in coming back to this title as an adult was what were my impressions of Gargoyle going to be? And at first, when we get Gargoyle in here, it's not great um, because his powers are it takes a long time before they start defining what his powers actually are he doesn't really have a voice of an old person uh, we get stories about his background in particular being a world war one veteran and that's really going to come home in issue 100 in spectacular fashion some of the best paneling we're going to get in that issue stand by but essentially what we learned about this guy is that he was come from this wonderful family that had uh, established christian borough in new jersey but the town was going to pot and so he sacrificed or he studied up on the cult sold his soul to Avarish for the town to thrive afterwards and when it comes down to it he has to sacrifice Patsy finds a heart and simply can't do it as we're going to see with, with Gargoyle going much much later on into the story he actually does quite a bit of development he's one of those characters like Nighthawk and Valkyrie that are going to be defenders through and through appear almost exclusively in this title, which means that they start to become 
uh, DeMatteis's playthings. That they're the characters that DeMatteis has free reign to just run roughshod over. And boy, will Matthias ever do so uh, <laughs> to, to the glory of the book <laughs> and to the joy of the readers, if you're anything like me. He's an, I, I like Gargoyle. My first impression of him uh, in this issue was just confusion because I didn't know what he was supposed to be. It's like, mm-hmm. he, the, especially the scene where he, um, uh, they meet him in his office and he's crying. Mm-hmm. Like we have the juxtaposition of this gruesome beast that has that has feelings, I guess. And Absolutely. there's a lot of the time, one of the issues coming up, um, I feel like he could be replaced with Ben Grimm in the terms of how he, he doesn't like his appearance <laughs> and he just wants the world to leave him alone. But the difference between him and Ben Grimm is that Ben Grimm didn't ask to be like that. Whereas Isaac Christians did ask to be like that. I'm not mm. knowing what the implications were really going to be. Yeah. And Ben Grimm also. Ben Grimm's my favorite character. Marvel 2 and 1 was my all-time favorite series. Nice. But Ben Grimm, uh, the pathos of Grimm is that he uses humor as his defense shield. Right. And you see that over and over again. Gargoyle doesn't really have that. So every comment against Gargoyle really seems to bite at him. Um, and so I remember when I wrote my notes on this one, the, uh, the only thing you really learned about Gargoyle's power is he shoots weird beams, he flies, and he cries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like, okay, I guess we have that. Yeah, but Gargoyle's, I, I heard that um, whether it was Perlin or DeMatteis, that they loved Etrigan over at DC. Oh, yeah. And so if you look at the, especially the face of Gargoyle, um, clearly there's that inspiration there. Um, and so you got that connection. And in the right hands, Gargoyle has a fantastic visual. If you got the right artists, and, and especially the right inkers, really good inkers later on, are going to really emphasize his warts. And they'll oftentimes portray his arms as being quite stringy and lanky, which gives him an even more uh, horrific sort of appearance to him. But, again, I guess to call back to your Ben Grimm comparison, he has the heart of an angel. He's really a sweet guy who did wrong things for the right reason, I suppose. Right, And And he's really going to accept his fate. Um, Even going so far as willing to sacrifice himself for that fate. And the guilt that hangs on him is going to be palatable through the rest of the series. I'm really looking forward to reading his miniseries that I'm sure will be collected in one of the last volumes. Um, mm. Because I don't know anything about it, but just finding out about this character, I'd like to see what he would do on his own solo adventure. I haven't read it either. Um, nice. That's something I'm going to be looking forward to getting my hands on as well. Cool. The other thing we got to mention about this issue is, of course, Hellcat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's captured. They perform a ritual. And she turns into a demonic version of herself, uh, complete with a brand new costume. You got to love that you get possessed by a demon. You instantly get a sexy costume. <laughs> <laughs> but you start setting up this issue starts. It sets up this whole storyline of the uh, six fingered hand. But the real emphasis in this story, at least I found, is the squaring off of Hellcat and Son of Satan, mm-hmm. which is going to 
really be the big issue or the big um, theme, I suppose, or point of tension throughout the entirety of the six-fingered hand story arc. So it's nice to see on page 88 and 89, for example, them, them going at it. And, and wonderful writing by De Mateus, where they're talking smack to each other. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I love it. Love it. Great stuff. And the, the big reveal also that it was her own mother mm. that um, sold her, I guess, to, to the devil in order to save herself because she was dying. Now, my first experience with Patsy's mom is, of course, in the Netflix show in season two where she is just awful. Yes. And while I don't think that she'll get to the point of actually selling her daughter to the devil, um, I could see that happening in her personality still. Um, like they, they write her in the show very close to what it feels like they write her in the comics as well. Mm, absolutely. And it, it, it's, it's such a great character turn for Patsy. Because when you read her in the earlier uh, incarnations of the, of the Defenders and the earlier writers of the Defenders, she's all cheese and crackers. <laughs> you know, that's her tagline. She's the happy-go-lucky girl. She's uh, she's cute. She's adorable. And boy, does she get put through the ringer in these issues. Um, yeah, I think they're really trying to shed the the romance comic um, history of this character. Mm-hmm. And, and really give her a new personality. Um, and and she, I think she makes a point at some point, or somebody makes a point of saying that she is just, um, she's not really herself anyway. She's just, her, her costume comes from a different person. Like she's not even an original character, original hero, something like her, that. Her, her origin makes no sense until you start getting into this issue. And then they kind of walk it back a bit. But the, her origin essentially is um, she was married to a guy who turns out to be a bum. She decides that she wants to get away from him. She finds the cat costume. Uh, if you ever remember the, that four-issue failed series from the, I guess, early 70s. Yeah. Um, puts on the costume, and all of a sudden she has powers, although there was never any real reason why that costume would have had powers because it didn't have powers for the cat. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, Greer Nelson, I think it's her name, turns into Tigra. Uh, the cat. Anyway, and, and, and you know, she flips around. She has those those hell or those those claw things that she fires out. But that's it. Um, so when we start getting into this particular run, we're offered up, as we're going to see a little bit later. We're offered up maybe a reason why that worked. Why putting on the costume actually mattered. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll stand by on that. We'll put a pin in that one, right? <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, this was a great start to the story. I love the final f- splash page where we see the six-fingered hand with the demon heads on the tips of the fingers. Really cool mm. stuff. You also get that wonderful um, image of, of Damien, or, or Damien, I think is, is how he's pronounced. I get corrected on that a lot. Uh, putting his cloak around Patsy, showing that affection. And yeah. even, um, even Valkyrie's reaction, because Valkyrie, of course, is the one who, by the power of female friendship... <laughs> rescues um, or almost exercises uh, Patsy of the Demon. She has that great look of concern about herself as well. So when we talk about Perlin's art, I mean, here's a great example of how Perlin can be super effective by conveying emotion onto a panel. Yeah, he does a really good job, and it's just emphasized by Sinnott's inks as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's lead into the next issue here. 
here's another pun in the title vampire strikes back <laughs> and if you need me to tell you what that is a pun of then i'm not talking to you anymore <laughs> oh i know sir i know okay uh okay so here is another one of the demons this one's got this one's named puishant i think that's how you pronounce it i'm gonna just go with that mm-hmm. and he possesses uh dracula and uses dracula to take out the defenders and while the defenders are distracted, he's uh, used. He's also possessing his entire castle um, and raising up a legion of undead vampires. And so they have to go and stop him. <laughs> That's basically right. the plot there. Fun issue, and I like the. Um, I, I like having Dracula in there. He's really cool in Tomb of Dracula, and it's nice to see him and Doctor Strange go at it from time to time. And there's the famous story mm-hmm. that they make reference to here, where. Um, they actually kill each other in both... Uh, there's a, a crossover between Doctor Strange and Tomb of Dracula where they they both die at the end of each other's issues. <laughs> yeah, Dracula is one of these... Tomb of Dracula, I, I think I might have to read that for the first time uh, because I keep hearing a lot of people tell me wonderful things about that particular series, but I never, I never engaged with it. Uh, as a kid, I was all about the superheroes and thought, you know, horror comics are, are just not for me but the way dracula is depicted here and the way he interacts with damien or damien and dr strange is fantastic because you got these three huge egos and they're just insulting each other and ta- smack smack talking each other the whole time um, before they finally agree all right we're gonna work together but it's just so much fun with the ego uh, the, the ego kind of coming into play it's such a typical, you know, country ruler, egotistical. They like Doctor Doom or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, it's fun. The horror elements are there. You get to these, I guess, zombie vampireling things coming in, and the ending is also quite interesting. Yeah, okay, so here's the thing about having so many mystical characters, is that I feel like whenever the writer just needs them to do something, they can do it. Absolutely. And and we you mentioned that Gargoyle's powers are not clearly defined. I felt like whenever they just need a Gargoyle to be able to do something, he was able to do it. Doctor Strange, he just has whatever incantation, and all of a sudden he can teleport them across the world or whatever. And in this one, Damon can control time. And I, it's like, I didn't know that that was a thing he could do. I didn't, uh, I don't know if, and he never does it again in this book. It's just all of a sudden, oh yeah, by the way, I can just stop things and, and speed things up or whatever and, and solve our problem that way. <laughs> well, and it's, it's even that is ambiguous. Because right. when they're asking, did you speed up time? He's like, not quite, Isaac Christians. Time remained the same, <laughs> but we moved and... Then he doesn't really quite give a good answer for what exactly that means. Did you nope. move the earth? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but again, it's just that um, it's just that that egos at play with these huge egos who are just kind of dismissive. I don't need to explain myself. It's the way I am. <laughs> uh, but I love how they you have the moral quandary that do you kill Dracula or not? And for Damion, he's like, nope, he gave me his word that he was going to do his part. I gave him my word and I'm sticking to it. I guess honor is, is better than uh, than dishonor in that case. Well, and I liked the fact that he he wrestled with that 
because uh, breaking his word is something that his father would do, but he's trying not to be like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he's going to, like, he gave him his word he needs to be honorable. So I thought that was kind of cool. Absolutely. Something we haven't mentioned is that Nighthawk at this point is now paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And so when his powers go away, he actually u- loses the use of his legs as well. Yes. Uh, that's going to somewhat change pretty soon. But uh, we'll get to that. Um, and then the other, the last thing I want to mention here is that on page 106, I like it when writers do this. They, there's no reason for these two panels to be here, the, the bottom two panels where um, some of uh, Valkyrie's um, Valkyrie sisters reach out mm-hmm. to her and try to the get Valkyrie. her to come back. Yeah, try to go back home and, and uh, join a fight. It just ties into the bigger picture and creates the tapestry that is the Marvel Universe. It has no bearing to this issue at all, but um, it makes reference to Thor number 312, in which the Valkyries are reclaiming Valhalla from Hela, who's taken it over. Um, And it's kind of a cool story if you go to that one, and it's found in the epic collection called A Kingdom Lost, Thor epic collection, A Kingdom Lost. Excellent. All right, fantastic. Okay, carrying on to issue number 96. This one's called The Rock and Roll Conspiracy. (laughs) This is a great issue. Yeah, this one is so... It's so 80s, it's it's hilarious. (laughs) So Ghost Rider is the guest star in this issue, and he aids the Defenders in their fight against a cult that is trying to contact the demon Fashima. And and Mm -hmm. the the cult is actually... um, they're pretty much groupies of a of a rock star named Asmodeus Jones, whose costume <laughs> is so incredibly like eighties glam. It's it, he and Nebulon could be friends. I mean, look at those heels that Asmodeus <laughs> Jones is. How do you dance? Yeah, uh, with that, and I love the song that he's singing on the um, opening page. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. 666 is the number to get with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you know that um, J.M. Matias is a musician? I did not know this. He's recorded an album, and you can find it, I think, on Spotify or something. Just look him up. Uh, or maybe it's on his webpage. But um, he, I noticed that there are quite a few times where he'll try to put sort of musical things in, in his comics and his stories. And this is one of those times right here. Mm, fantastic good issue really good issue uh, advances the story that we have with the six-fingered hand they're all trying to find who the other members of the six-fingered hand is so the early on the story arc is again a kind of macguffin chase you're looking for each of the six uh, the demons that comprise the six-fingered hand and trying to defeat them one at a time and they manifest themselves in these odd ways like uh, asmodeus jones we get ghost rider here and anytime you get Ghost Rider show up, he has to fight all the other heroes <laughs> because that's the rules with <laughs> Ghost Rider. Right. <laughs> and um, he puts up a pretty decent fight until we get that sort of, um, I guess, Deus says Ex Machina, Doctor Strange says, all right, I'm just going to turn you back into um, Johnny Blaze. No, no, and, uh, Son of Satan does that. Oh, Son of Satan does it. Yeah. That's right. Right. Because he uh, can, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's kind of has a background as an, as an exorcist. That's uh, true, actually, yeah. So I guess that makes a little bit more sense than Doctor Strange snapping his fingers and doing it. Which would not have been outside the lines or the expectations of Doctor Strange by any means. What I love about this, the fight with Asmodeus Jones, 
is that the crowd doesn't seem to blink. <laughs> you got this big epic fight taking place on stage. And you got these superheroes floating around on discs. They're all firing their energy beams. Even <laughs> Hellcat is shooting a psionic beam, it looks like, on page Oh, one. yeah. Yeah, you're right. For a brief little time, she had trained with Moondragon in the arts of psionics. And so she has a little bit of that. Every once in a while, it manifests itself. Uh, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they forget it. She has it. Um, but the crowd's like, yeah, right on. <laughs> it's all part of the Great. show. Yeah, we got Big Demon appearing behind the stage, and then we got all these heroes shooting up. Uh, gotta admit, would have been a fun uh, concert to go to, I think. <laughs> it would have, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One to remember. Yeah, we got a couple of great moments with um, character moments where something's not right with Patsy. Yeah, yeah, this was really interesting. I thought the, the end where her response to... Um, Osmodius Jones revealing that his brother was the one who just died is laughter. Yeah, yeah. It's like she finds the whole thing amusing, and like that was like we we realize now. Wow, she didn't come out of that that the last mm -hmm. issue or the two issues ago uh, the same person at all. No, and Perlin gives her the crazy eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, so good. Diluted, and even on page one twenty seven, we again get a sense that she's not she's not the cheese and crackers Patsy that we've come to know right where she's fronting a gargoyle um and when he's trying to offer a little bit of a little bit of sympathy to dolly she screams at him don't you touch her you animal <laughs> and i mean maybe that's within her rights gargoyle kind of accounted for her mom's death but um yeah then she even tells da damien to uh, shut up but um yeah great stuff we get some tension building up um, as we start getting our way towards issue 100. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, why don't we keep on... Do you have anything more to say about this one? I do not. Okay. But I'm really excited to get to issue 97, because this is one of the most wild of the issues. Yeah, in yeah. The, in the MacGuffin hunt for the various members of the Six-Fingered Hand. So, we're going to get Devil Slayer coming into this one. And... Devil Slayer is a guy who came in and out of the um, uh, Defenders a couple of times. And he had his own run in one of those Marvel anthology books uh, that had appeared a couple of times. And his backstory is that he's a Vietnam veteran. Um, came out of there with what we would nowadays call post-traumatic stress disorder. Became a mob hitman. Got a hold of this cloak and some powers. His powers are teleportation. He's really strong in an earlier issue. Um, he actually wraps up the Hulk in this mystic cloak of his and uh, pops him away to some weird dimension. He can pull out weapons. But he's a character that has a lot of gravitas to him, in or a lot of pathos to him, rather, is a better term. Uh, there's a lot of pain involved in his character that he's constantly working out. He's a very violent individual who struggles against his violent tendencies. And um, all of that has caused him to become estranged to his wife, Corey. And so this issue, he comes back because apparently this demon um, named Hippocori has, has been identified as, as playing out in the Middle East. So Devil Slayers comes on, on board with the uh, defenders. They head out to the Middle East. And that's when we encounter 
a cult of sorts of this Christ-like figure who's built this cult based upon his ability to heal. And so, as Curtis, you said before, at this point in the book, um, Kyle is partially crippled. At nighttime, he can, he can operate. Um, but in the daytime, he's, he's paralyzed. And so, as the defenders are standing around wondering, is this the demon? Because he's doing these good deeds. Well, he offers to heal Kyle. Kyle agrees to it. Kyle is submerged in the water. And sure enough, Kyle can walk. And so, when we talk about these moral quandaries, well, what then do you do? Is this indeed a demon? Or is this actually a force for good who might have, you know, might have a little sprinkling of demon in him? <laughs> so that's when, of course, Damian, son of Satan, comes in. He's not having any of it. He calls this guy out on it, threatens to kill him. Uh, this Christ figure summons a bunch of angels. Turns out these angels are actually demons. And we get one of these big epic battles. And what I love about Perlin's art, Perlin is in competition with the Jim Starlin Award for weird-looking aliens and demons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when we see the big reveal that these are not indeed angels on page 161, my goodness, are they goofy-looking demons. They are. Um, but the story ends. Uh, the story ends with this Christ-like figure. He's too far gone in terms of the possession and so as he knocks Devil Slayer to the ground, he realizes the only way in which he can purify himself, get the demon out, is by sacrificing his own life. And sure enough, he jumps onto the sword of Devil Slayer, thus uh, releasing the devil or the demon. And um, wow, just a gut punch. That's why when your, I think it was JC said that this was his issue, his introductory issue. Yeah. To the defenders, I was like, oh my goodness. Because <laughs> I don't know if my mom had picked this book up for me and looked through the pages, <laughs> if I would have been able to keep this book. <laughs> or had any other issues of the defenders added to my collection. Yeah. This is, a, this is a serious, serious issue in terms of how death is dealt with and how the moral quandary is dealt with. And then, of course, on top of it, we get... Devil Slayer really getting confronted by his ex-wife, Corey. And she's not thrilled with this. She is not letting him off easy. And, uh, yeah, great issue. Just, this is a spectacular issue. If you haven't read this one, run out and get this issue. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is a spectacular one. I found it very interesting, uh, ju just the whole, the whole religious kind of side to it. Um, because we have a character who is the the son of the devil mm -hmm. and then we're being introduced to these other concepts that there are so many demons that are i don't know plaguing the world or whatever and then we have this issue here where there all of these angels come but nobody questions it they're just angels but they're they're still bad guys like mm -hmm. i can understand them be like we got to fight demons but but shouldn't they be on the same side as as the angels but i guess the angels are attacking them so they have to defend themselves but <laughs> yeah. when we get further into the book i think damien has an enlightenment when he has a confrontation with his father that shows him another side of kind of this side of the spiritual world i guess mm -hmm. 
So the other thing I want to put point out is that um, the artwork, when, once they enter um, the desert in this little oasis, now I am a church-going guy, and when I was a kid in church, we used to hand, they used to hand out these little like f- five or six-page comics. Oh, these the chick tracks? Um, not the chick tracks. No, those those ones are bizarre. Let me tell you, those ones are great. Um, <laughs> but no, these ones were they were called picks, P-I-X. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they were collected um, into a giant Bible called the Picture Bible, which is just a big comic book version of the Bible. And the artwork is so very similar to what Don Perlin does in these issues here, uh, in these pages here when they're on, um, when they're in this desert. The the colors, the 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 staging, um, the way he draws people, like it all changes if you if you back up a couple of pages to where he's fighting where devil uh, devil slayer is fighting the the demons and dr strange is probing the mind of patsy the artwork the style is completely different mm-hmm. and i wonder if it's intentional that they're trying to mimic that kind of bible comic style that uh, people at this in this era would have been very familiar with um if they were church-going people that is interesting dave mateus is he a is he a religious fellow I don't know. I don't think that he is. Because he seems to play around with... I don't know what he... I'm not familiar with his work too extensively on Captain America or Spider-Man. He doesn't play around with these themes in Captain America. Okay. Um, it's a very different a very different book over there. And and same with his work on Spider-Man. He doesn't bring these aspects into it. It's, it's just here in Defenders from what I know. But, I mean, I haven't read everything of his. It certainly is at peace with what the Aven- Defenders have been doing to this point. Yeah, so. which is probably why he carries on. Right. Yeah, but yeah, this is a a neat issue, kind of a gut punch for sure. This that last Ooh. one where you just see the the dead face of David half in the sand with his eye rolled up. It's like, wow, oh what goodness. a what an image there. <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. Um okay, so next up is Defenders number 98 with Man Thing. This is a a, a weird cover by um I think is it Marshall Rogers? It, there's, it says Marshall in the in the bottom there. Doesn't exactly look like his style, so I don't know who the inker would have been on this. It's um, Marshall Rogers and George Russo's as inker. Okay. Or George. At least that's what I'm reading on my uh, on the wiki. Okay. So George must have some heavy influence because Marshall doesn't usually put, like he puts detail into his work, but not the same level of detail as as this here. So. This is a very... I love the frog above the D on Defenders. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. That, that's <laughs> kind of a Marshall Rogers thing to do right there. So. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's uh, okay, let's see here. This issue is called The Hand Closes. And in this one, um, the Defenders must battle yet another demon from the Six-Fingered Hand. This one's called Unthink. And it's mm-hmm. taken possession of Man-Thing. And have you noticed that the names of these demons kind of reference, like, wh- how they take over people and that kind of thing? So Man-Thing is known for being mindless. Mm-hmm. And so the demon called Unthink takes him over. And in the past one, the the demon Hippocrate, which sounds like hypocrite. Right. Uh, I didn't even mis- pick up on that. Yeah. Look at you. That's good. Yep. That's, a, that's creative. So yeah, you'll see that uh, you see that pop up here and there. So this was a this is a this issue here has a few different parts and a few different storylines going on. The main one being Man Thing. Um, I guess they want to um, have access to the nexus of realities, 
if they open up the nexus of realities, then the demons can go anywhere they want to, and and their their reach can be extended. And then there's also another storyline, uh, furthering on Kyle's story, which is each issue here is kind of furthering on Kyle's story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see him being taken away. He quits the defenders because he's no good uh, to them as as he is because he can only fight at night. And, uh, and then he'll go on to deal with his c- kind of corporate stuff. And then another storyline where a boy disappears in a cape. <laughs> and that boy doesn't yeah. come back for several issues. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, I remember when I read that, uh, I kept flipping pages. Like, gosh, when does he come back? So I remember, sort of remembered him coming back, but then I couldn't, it, they certainly take their time bringing this poor kid back. Yeah. And then further progression of, of uh, Patsy. Um, to the point where she's like, she at one point tries to seduce him, then tries to belittle him and, and mocks him and like, uh, son of Satan. And, um, (laughs) just, uh, a very, very abrupt change of character for her because she's experiencing some, some clashing personalities inside of her. What I love about this one, what I thought was really strong in this one is when they get Ted Salas or Dr. Strange contacts Ted Salas to try to overcome unthink and what a cool design for unthink it's yeah. just a, really just the spine and the upper torso and the little i love that just that 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 uh that that image but um on page 183 you have this fantastic so the battle's over and dr strange confronts ted who's essentially locked inside this mindless beast in the right. swamp yeah and he says um i'll, I'll read some of the dialogue once again Salas. You may have been instrumental in aiding me against a mystic foeman. And once again, I am saddened because it is beyond my grasp to return you to human form. But let me grant you your conscious control over your, this cursed beast. With your mind alive, we could bridge the gap between science and sorcery. Perhaps find the elusive cure. There will be hope. And Salas' response is no. We might fail. I couldn't bear to <laughs> live as this mindless beast. I thought that was a, a very interesting term because imagine, I'm sure it's been done, but I'm just not aware of it. But imagine man thing with Salas's mind into it. Uh, possibilities could be, could be fantastic. I've always been a huge fan of, of man thing. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see a sentient man thing actually operating in that sense. Yeah, that'd be cool. But again, yeah, character beats. I love that Mateus gives us these panels to, uh, you know, to to explore the pathos, to explore what is the core to these characters, even if they're just appearing in one issue. Um, and Man Thing is a is a tricky tricky sell. Uh, most of the time, when he just appears, he appears, he touches somebody, they catch fire, and he walks away. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, although yeah, the yeah. visuals of Man Thing are something that I think are fantastic, and a good inkers and good artists can almost imprint emotion upon the, the face of man thing but um yeah this is they they really they do a good job and, and i love kaiju man thing right. <laughs> monster man thing uh great visuals there as well uh and then the, the the splash page on 185 i love too where they are floating through the nexus of realities mm-hmm. i just wonder how long it takes to ink all of those stars Oh my goodness! One of the ones that's that I find because you have these little platforms with strange things going on. The one that's disturbing is the dog-faced 
person with the human <laughs> dog <laughs> <Yeah>. on a leash. <laughs> totally. Yep. It's awesome. <laughs> and, and the little house in the background. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The nexus of all realities. Of all realities. Even the one with dog people with human pets. And it is, it's fun too, because um, on the next page on 186, the big middle pad, uh, thing, you have the big hand pointing. <laughs> this is where you go. <laughs> Make no mistake, buddy. You're heading this way. <laughs> yeah. And so we're taking to at the very end. There's a welcome sign. This is welcome to Citrusville. So a few issues um, before or no, there was this issue. Captain America calls Doctor Strange to say that an entire town has been wiped out and there's just a giant handprint of a six-fingered hand uh, in its place, mm-hmm. which has got to be a massive hand. And then it's the six-fingered hand that is beckoning them as well, as pointing them where to go. It's like, you know that the six-fingered hand is a bad thing, right? Maybe you don't want to just walk right over to where it's telling you to go because it could possibly be a trap. <laughs> could be. Could be. Could be. <laughs> Turns out that, yeah, it actually is. Oops. Well, these things happen. Yep. Okay, 99. Take us to 99. All right. So in 99, we've gone into the nexus of all realities. And our convenient hand has shown us the way the hand appears once again to kind of say, hey, over this way, buddy. Keep coming. And we arrive to find uh, a big demon who seems to be kind of the boss of several of the lesser demons named Maya. He has captured Hulk, Submariner, Clea, and the Silver Surfer. So you know the game is on if you've gotten those guys on board. Um, the demons begin mocking the defenders because they can't free their, uh, their friends, uh, the other defenders. And we get a chance to explore this demon, demonic Citrusville. And we find some images of true horror. For example, it's populated by these people with no face. This was awesome. I loved it. I loved it, too. And in a way, this demon Maya is using it to make a little bit of commentary on our society. That humanity is just nothing but once you strip away their gibbering exteriors, as it says on 197, all you have are dull, faceless zeros. Who would care to inspect him, my dear, he says to uh, Valkyrie. And when Valkyrie does try to inspect him, she gets kind of smacked away. And uh, on the next page, 198, you get this fantastic image of where the demons let the revelry begin in the town. It's the true horror is, rele- is released and the people are made to dance in this weird circus-like sort of structure. <laughs> it's so creepy. It's totally, and I love the the one kid who has flies for a face. He's like the prominent one there, sticking a a, a dagger or something through a lizard's mouth. <laughs> it's pretty wild. And underneath the <laughs> stage, what the musicians are playing, you have an eye and a tentacle. So there's something yeah. underneath there. Well, and coming the, the merry-go-round is made up of uh, people riding other people. Oh, brutal! So Damien, of course, is not going to have any of this. And he begins to attack. Sends the townspeople, the townspeople being controlled by the demon attack, and the demon horde comes emerging forward. And eventually, here's again where you get one of these situations where the unrefined abilities of the gargoyle come into place, because 
previous to this, we've seen that he's been able to sap the soul or the spirituality, the essence of a human. But now we start learning that he's able to actually reverse that process and uh, fill people up with power. And so he powers down the demons, powers up his friends. They break free. But it looks like the defenders are on the verge of triumph until we get to page 205. And we see that Maya, Maya is not just some purple demon in a loincloth or fur loincloth. He is Mephisto, Lord of the Netherworld. And not only that, but it only takes one more page before we get the big dog himself, Satan, coming into play here, bringing Hatsy and Kyle. I was not sure if they were actually going to show like some sort of personification of Satan. I haven't read the Son of Satan series, so I don't know if he appears there. Yeah, but, me neither. Uh, I wasn't sure if uh, um, if they were actually going to, to show him, because they never... I feel like they never go that far as to actually show God or, or Satan in, in comic books and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get to... Uh, let's put a pin in Satan yeah, talk. Because sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's it's a lot gonna more. Get, it's going to get weirder and a lot more interesting as we go in. Sure. One of my, um, again, one of my, one of my friends from the blog, uh, Dominic, number one Defenders fan, he made a great comment to me. He said that um, to the team's creative, uh, to the creative team's credit, this is the first story in which all of the MU's devils were used in one story, and an attempt to reconcile them. If you think about it, why did Son of Satan? or Ghost Rider, for that matter, never acknowledged Mephisto before this, or vice versa. Right. They are always dealt with, they always dealt with Satan. So, what this particular story arc begins to explore is that when you see Satanish, Thog, Mephisto, essentially they're all just aspects of Satan himself. At least, it seems that way in the Marvel cosmology at this point. Yeah, aspects of himself, but with their own, their own, um, free will to do what they want i think because mephisto definitely is his own his own being i think yeah i don't really know anything about thog or satanish so i can't comment on those guys but but yeah i mean mephisto is very different than the portrayal of satan in this one in this book here we will get to we'll get to where they uh they those two are interacting a little bit right some other great things there's a callback to that issue we talked about at the beginning with the with the eternity, because it appears that um, with eternity nearly destroying himself, it weakens binds of the universe. And so, one of the ways by which Satan has been manipulating the defenders is by making Doctor Strange cast his teleportations all the time, further uh, weakening the bonds that bind the universe together. And so here's where we get that call back to the very first issue in this particular collection and yeah. why that issue's there. I was not so expecting much. that. I, it was really cool because I thought that this was that, like you said, I thought that was going to be a standalone issue. And then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. they tie it all the way back to, to make that actually kind of the first chapter of this big story. Yeah. Too bad Nebulon doesn't appear. Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Page 209. Look at that last Oh, splash man. Page. So incredibly good. Wow. Ugh. I wonder who has the original art for this one. Mm. 
I would hate to be that poor uh, guy <laughs> right above the box next month box <laughs> who is in the break in the concrete. Uh, yeah. um, you just see his head bubbling. Or there's a person being pulled by their hair out of the bus. <laughs> Fantastic. I wonder what the movie was in the background. It looks like it's hell something. Right. It's okay. So in the next, turn a page, uh, two, two pages. Oh, Devil and Mrs. Muir? I'm pretty fun? sure, yeah, that's probably what it is. Oh, right, right, right. And I love that you see the Empire State Building just... Uh, it's totally on, on flame, in flames. Yeah, just centering us where we are, Times Square, and yep. uh, giving us a sense of place. Fantastic. Hell on Earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the splash page, before the two-page splash page... Oh, this is issue 100, double-sized issue. Um, I'm frankly surprised that Defenders got to issue 100, <laughs> um, based on it yep. being a non-team with a rotating cast of lesser-known heroes. Mm -hmm. It's incredible that it made it this far, but this was in a day where they didn't publish as many titles, so they could have things like this. I don't think mm. um, you'd find this kind of title being as successful these days. They've tried... Yeah to bring back the uh, defenders the fearless defenders um was one example of it but it, it's never stuck no it hasn't no, and i think it's just that um characters like namor and i mean dr strange now has a new lease on life because of the movies but even dr strange like they never have been the heavy hitters um in the marvel universe no. They, they had they that, had their time in the eight, the seventies and the eighties, but then there was a weird period during the nineties and two thousands, the early two thousands, that they just no one really cared about them. No, and for a large large part too, uh, the defenders or the Avengers have pretty much expanded in the Marvel universe nowadays to encompass everybody. Right. Yeah. So there's no need for the defenders. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> Which is, I guess, why they're now rebranded as the street level heroes um, mm -hmm. that the Netflix show. Has. And that makes sense. Yep. And yeah, that makes sense. Now, I don't even know. I don't even know if the uh, if the supernatural hunting defenders that this was even as a place in the zeitgeist of today in the same way. Because when I think about this time, you know, being a big Dungeons and Dragons fan, also, I remember the Satanic Panic and how that was the thing, and mm -hmm. the heavy metal albums all had like you know the kind of playing around with the imagery. It was just in the zeitgeist at the time, and so the Defenders kind of fits really comfortably within that realm. Yeah, I guess so. I don't think we have that today, at least not in the same, in the same way. And so there you, there you go. So in this issue, number 100, they face off against Satan, but Satan splits up the team and sends them to different places, and they, each of the team has to face off against a di one of his different manifestations. And so we have Doctor Strange, Hulk, and Namor versus Satanish. Mm -hmm. Nighthawk, Gargoyle, and Devil Slayer versus Thog. And Silver Surfer, Valkyrie, and Clea versus Mephisto. Mm -hmm. And of course, Satan, or Son of Satan, and, uh, and Hellcat. Patsy, Hellcat, have to uh, duke it out <laughs> themselves. So here's, here's where we get to find out the real purpose here is that this story is actually one of a father versus son or father trying to get his wayward son to come back into his, uh, in, into the fold. Yes. 
And that was uh, unexpected. I didn't realize that that is, was all building up to focus around um, Son of Satan. That was as interesting. And he's using Patsy. Patsy's back to being the the demonic Hellcat in this issue. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, well, if you're not going to be my son, then I'm going to make her my daughter and she'll be the new you. And I, I'll just forget about you. Mm-hmm. And uh, Damon doesn't want to have anything to do with that either. Um, and he, this is the issue where I think he admits that he loves Patsy. Well, he gets outed on loving Patsy. Or he gets outed, Dad yeah. kind of, yeah, Dad kind of like, you love her, but guess what, son? She's your sister. <laughs> <laughs> Which is brutal, just, uh, just absolutely brutal stuff. And even some of the imagery in terms of how he breaks down this story that may or may not be true. We don't know until later on the truth of it. But if you look at page 216, where he's talking about how... Um, he makes Hellcat. Look at the middle pad- panel on the top. And it's oh, a yeah. kind of, it's almost like a sexual It's a little sort of, kinky, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's dad and daughter maybe. And it's really flaunting that in the face of not only Valkyrie, but certainly also of, of, of Damien. Yeah. Um, just brutal what they do, what Damien does to these characters. I mean, just when I speak about bringing, dragging them through the ringer, this is what I'm talking about. Um, and it makes for a fantastic story. I mean, it really is 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 stunning, in my opinion. And if we can talk about the different missions that these guys go on. Sure. The first one that involves the Hulk, uh, Namor, and, and, and Doctor Strange, I think that one's maybe the weakest of the three. Because um, it ends up kind of being a, a throwback fight to some of the earlier villains. Zemnu, the Titan, one of the first villains of the Defenders, and Yandroth, the Mad Machine, which is really one of the first ones. I think that's either issue one or two or something like that. Um, but when we start getting into the second of the stories, the Gargoyle, Nighthawk, Devil Slayer one, oh my goodness. What they, how they present this story. So they have to go and essentially confront their background gargoyle and devil slayer in particular their background as soldiers right in, in these wars gargoyle fought in world war one which made me do some quick math and i figured he was about <laughs> close to 76 or 78 or something like that he was 18 years old he says 78 that he's 78 a couple times throughout this book if he was 18 years old in 1918 when american soldiers were fighting i guess that kind of yeah i guess that kind of works out to about 70 something probably born around 1900 i suppose yeah. for easy math. but if you look at page 228 wow just the brutal uh depiction of these soldiers who've lost their lives mm-hmm. and and how they confront the heroes like for example i'm going to read some of the, the dialogue here turning towards some of these soldiers who died they turned towards nighthawk and nighthawk didn't serve in the military because he had a heart murmur and he kind of felt guilty about that a little bit. Well, here's these dead soldiers. They say, no, the millionaire's son could always take the easy route. But some of us weren't so lucky. Some of us didn't have the power and influence. We had no choice but to go and die. Oh, brutal stuff. Yeah, heavy hitting. And, uh, yeah, just, just really well done. And then you have a, 
Another one where Isaac has to face his buddy from World War One, this guy Buster Henderson, who had his heart blown out in the war. And he's just a kid. Uh, just a kid. Yeah, freckled face. I mean, the, they do a great job of emphasizing that. And I thought the um, the Silver Surfer Clea Valkyrie story was also great, as they're essentially facing Mephisto in oblivion. Um, an oblivion that could offer them their wildest dreams. So Shalabal, uh, the power of sorcery for Clea, or leading the Valkyrie for Valkyrie. But yet then they have to kind of get back to their good sense and uh, resist, resist Mephisto. But in each of the, those three side quests, the devils, or the demons cheat and try to rob them right before snatch uh snatch victory from the jaws of the field right before they they're able to claim their victory it's really weird because um it 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 turns out that satan actually gives them the tools that they need in order to win each of these battles yes i don't know what the purpose of that is because then these other devils end up cheating and take their lives anyway well it ties into this idea of satan isn't it he is the master of lies. And this is why I was saying that these, these aspects, these, that, that, uh, the way I see the Satan character in the Marvel Universe, he's more like subdivides different aspects of himself into these three demons, at least in this particular story. So Mephisto's the master of lies, for example. Um, Satanish is the one who kind of punishes you for, for misdeeds. So it's almost like Satan is... is <laughs> is, is kind of renting out his power to these different characters but that is a way by which he can still be the master of lies give them the illusion that they can win but really they can't hmm. but yet that then shows to Damien who's trying to lure to the dark side hey I'm not a bad guy I'm a nice guy after all come and hang out with me and learn my ways and I think that that's hammered home at least for me in that last bit of dialogue at the end where he's kind of admitting, maybe I'm lying about Hellcat. Maybe I'm lying about this whole thing as he kind of disappears, claiming his love. Does he really love Damien? What was your impression of that? What'd you get out of that? Am I reading too much into it? No, I think, uh, I think you make some good points here. He, it, it's very interesting. He's not a completely evil entity no that was that was the weirdest thing when he's like no he actually loves somebody it's his son and mm -hmm. um and so and, and then they play with this a lot more a couple issues down the road which um, i'll get into a little bit more when we find out the another aspect of really big <laughs> weird turn <laughs> yeah very strange but uh um the fact that he succeeds in bringing out damien's more hellish side uh, the dark soul, I guess mm -hmm. he calls himself, but he does it out of love <laughs> by beating him up. <laughs> it's such a, <laughs> a twisted way of, of, um, of just yeah. showing this relationship between father and son. On 248, if I could read some of the dialogue that Satan's parting words are, it's, it really hammers some of these things home. I'm going to start with the secondary thing that he says, but perhaps again, or, but then again, Perhaps the Lord of Lies has constructed this entire explanation in order to conceal his burning humiliation. The shame 
of forfeiting total mastery of humanity. Ah, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. But none of you will ever really know. And he's gone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Mm, that's a lot to chew on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I find that uh, J.M. DiMatteis has a lot of really good dialogue. He's great with narr- narration oh, and great with uh, just putting out the kind of dialogue that makes you contemplate and gives you something like it's not a, it's not a breezy book to read. It, there's a, it's very dense. There's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff to chew on, and every issue presents a different a different aspect of that. And mm-hmm. in this issue, we get like five different things to chew on because of the different uh, situations these heroes are put in. And we're left feeling like Hulk when he says, then we did right, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nobody's right. entirely certain. Nope, not at all. Um, okay, it says here that the artists are Don Perlin and Joe Sinnott. Mm-hmm. But part two, the story with Nighthawk, Gargoyle, and Devil Slayer definitely is not inked by Joe Sinnott. So I'm assuming that Don Perlin inked these pages himself. So here's what I got from the Marvel Wiki. Sinat inks pages 1 through 16, page 22, 24 through 33, and 35 through 37. Okay. We get an uncredited inking from Trapani, and he's been doing, and will do some more work later on. Okay. On pages 17, 19, 38, we get Abel on pages 18 and 23, Milgram on page 20, and Giacoa on uh, 21 and 34. <laughs> okay, okay. So, yeah, these are the anchors that um, a lot of them get credited later on. So yeah. Th- I felt like there's that one page, page 18, which is page 228 in this collection. Those soldiers, they are inked like a Joe Kubert drawing, like when he was doing his old mm-hmm. war stories for DC. Like they really wanted to evoke that old uh, war DC war style of Joe Kubert's. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's all that's one of my favorite panels in this entire collection. Yeah, it's really good. Excellent stuff. Yeah, the the cover is worth noting as well as an homage to X-Men 100. Right, yep. This is essentially the conclusion of the six-fingered hand uh story arc in and of itself. But one also has to remember that when we're talking about J.M. Mateus, the Mateus he loves to give us ramifications for these events that happen. So what happens in this buildup is going to be felt for the next several issues going forward. So you know what? I think we're going to have to stop here. We've been going on for a long time, and we're going to have to split (laughs) up this episode into two parts because we still have a lot of issues to talk about. So why don't we cap it here and return another time? Sounds good. And I'll play these, and then when I release these episodes, I'll do it back-to-back, uh, like I did with the Ant-Man ones. But uh, yeah, this was this was fantastic, Jason. What a great time. What a great conversation. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, this is fun. I, I love talking comics. <laughs> good. 